my name is Nikhil Mukherjee, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 252. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, son, hey, son! Ooh, it's been a while. Um, almost exactly a week. <laughs> <laughs> right. How are you guys? I'm very well. I'm very well. Actually, I'm starting to feel a little bit of the Christmas uh, spirit coming on. Oh, okay. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Any snow around? No. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> global warming, you know, that doesn't happen. Have you seen Santa yet? No, have you? I mean, I usually don't. No? So. Okay. <laughs> you haven't drunk enough. Um, <laughs> I did. It was it was uh, the, the birthday of uh, a friend of mine's uh, five-year-old daughter. So that was a good occasion for all of us to get together on Zoom with a drink and, uh, well, a few. <laughs> Just celebrate. And the little girl didn't mind. Now, what did she drink? That's my question. <laughs> I don't know, but she was very active uh, for a while, at least. And uh, and then she disappeared to her room um, to have fun. I don't know. Anika, yes. talking about children. You're expecting any time now, aren't you? Yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> we already said, like, Murphy's Law would actually dictate that it should be like Christmas Eve okay. with a snow blizzard coming on. Yes. So <laughs> wow. we'll see wh- what and when. So you're going to have to fight with Santa exactly. along the way. Yeah. <laughs> you might be able to see him. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all here for you. Well, from the distance, <laughs> we're all supporting you. Thank you. Thank good. you. <laughs> good, good, good. Now that we mentioned uh, the long beard guy, <laughs> I have to mention another one. And actually, one of the reasons why we have to is uh, that we got contacted by another guy named, by the name Gary. Thank you very much for your email, Gary. <laughs> and you quite rightly pointed out that I missed mentioning something very important on the, on the episode, the last episode, even though I usually am very adamant in uh, bashing Orban's regime and everyone who belongs to the regime... And this is exactly what happened. And it it blew up all over the world. Like, I, I saw it on Twitter, tweeted by Hollywood stars, oh. that this guy from Fidesz, the governing party of Hungary, an MEP of Fidesz, by the name Jozef Sayer, well, he was caught by Belgian police. With his pants down, just like... <laughs> With his like pants down, exactly. It's a good thing that we mentioned that about the Pope last time, that this time it was not the Pope, it was a fucking MEP of Fidesz. And why it's important that he got, he was caught running or trying to run away with uh, a little bit of drugs in his uh, backpack, uh, half naked, or probably naked, climbing down the, the drain pipe of the house, f- leaving... V- in a rush, of course, uh, when the police arrived, he was leaving this uh, party of 25 people who were all male and having a sex party. Mm. Now, why this is important and interesting is that because uh, Fides is well known across Europe and probably around the world by now about their policies uh, regarding the LGBTQ community. And uh, they're trying to restrict their every action, uh, their lives. Even the constitution of the country is now written in a way that it it basically uh, disqualifies everyone who belongs to the LGBTQ community. So that's just and he was he ha, he has been actively promoting this change to the constitution right exactly and not only promoting he was the one writing it. oh <laughs> he was the one writing it on his ipad while flying between brussels and budapest talking about projecting you know oh. <laughs> yeah exactly right. so that's the level of hypocrisy that is basically non plus ultra no. 
And quick question: Is he allowed? Are you allowed in Hungary to have parties right now? Uh, no, no, no. So uh, that's also part of the problem. Actually, it was it was it's uh, Monday now, and uh, it was only today that uh, Orban um, announced that uh, the restrictions will remain until the 11th of January, and that means that no New Year's Eve parties, no Christmas parties. But he specifically said that Christmas is still up for debate, Chris, uh, Christmas Eve. And you know why that is? Because of re- because the Christmas mess, the Christmas oh. mess, oh. the mess, the Christmas mess. That's what we call it now. Yeah, yeah. they're they're making a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, they want people to go go to the mess and and celebrate and I don't know, be with Jesus, baby Jesus. You know what I think they should do? They should they should make the rules. So it's still allowed to go to Christmas mass, but you have to go there naked, just wearing a, a backpack. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Then we'll see how many shows up. <laughs> so I have to say that I'm not happy when uh, people make fun of this guy's being gay, because this, this does happen. And uh, I find it very distasteful. But what's really bad about this is the hypocrisy and the fact that he has been an active part of building up this system that basically rejects everyone who's uh, gay or lesbian or belongs to the LGBTQ community. And that is outrageous and that is that should not be tolerated in Europe. And this guy turned, just turning out to be one of them is, is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, but it, no, of course, I mean, it's the hypocrisy we're making fun of, not, yeah. not the fact that he's gay. Exactly, of yes. But um, unfortunately, I have seen some very distasteful things yeah, said I'm on, sure online uh, about this as well well the the reason we didn't bring it up was that we recorded a little bit early so so we didn't know about this yes. story when we recorded otherwise of course we would have yeah. brought it up our psychic powers were lacking yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah and the, the other thing why it might be uh, somewhat of a skeptical topic as well so i i could have uh, brought it up had i known about it in time for the recording which wasn't the case is that now the direction of of Fidesz's communication is all about putting it all on on Soros so the government uh narrative is that the whole thing happened because Soros and and his agents uh operated in the background and it was all planned and uh this was this was um a, a takedown operation wow uh, for this guy and fides this is how far the the government propaganda has gone by now um, in hungary i don't know what to say i think that that's it's so i mean how how, how did we get the hair how, how did we get here so that uh, it's like a fantasy world well 15 years of manipulation that's how we got here yeah and uh Fuck. and propaganda so uh we encourage an, a, anyone and everyone listening to the show to let us know if uh, you think like uh, we've missed something or <laughs> or uh, we should have talked about something. But please bear in mind that uh, unfortunately, because we all have our own schedules and we try to squeeze in uh, producing the podcast um, between our schedules, uh, we usually record on a Monday and we release on Usually a Thursday, <laughs> if I manage to put it together by Thursday evening. Thursday-ish. <laughs> Thursday-ish. So it takes it takes a while to edit a, a more than an hour long show. So please bear, bear with us and and uh, keep them coming. Uh, we all love the feedback. And uh, Gary, thanks very much for that email as well. And uh, I, I have to add that as well that uh, you you did say you loved the show and uh, and you appreciated it. And we really appreciate you listening and everyone else. But this week. We have uh, no news <laughs> whatsoever. Oh, there is actually something that I want to mention, and that is that the medical okay. chamber of Bavaria mm-hmm. um, this weekend, so on the fifth, they decided to not support um, the additional homeopathy uh, schooling for for medical doctors anymore. Ooh, <gasps> that's good. That is so. something to cheer. Okay. Yeah, Definitely. Good. Okay. <laughs> uh, remind us we not we remind us which country is Bavaria? <laughs> where is it? <laughs> well, where could it be other than Germany? <laughs> the, the oh, home that country, is something that a German would say. <laughs> home country of uh, of uh, homeopathy. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, that's yeah. right. Good. That's a real blow to Hahnemann's followers, right? Yes. <laughs> and it's like we, we still have some uh, federal countries that still do that, uh, still support it, but uh, it's getting better. <laughs> yeah. Right. Take that somewhere. <laughs> All right. Good you mention that. Talking about Germany, I think uh, we have someone that you guys interviewed for the show from Germany. Right? Yes. <laughs> and so I was unfortunate enough not to be there. So tell, tell us something about that, that interview. Yes, today we are going to listen to an interview about philosophy. Mm, That's uh, a little bit uh, unusual. It has been actually a, a little bit controversial in the, in the skeptical community. Uh, some prominent skeptics, I will not name them, said the philosophy was useless. You don't have to use that. I think if you listen to this interview, you will um, change your mind. It's a, quite a practical approach on philosophy. And I am intentionally not mentioning the guy's name because I don't <laughs> know how to pronounce it. Annika, help me out. Yeah, so we interviewed uh, Nikhil Mukherjee and he's a philosopher and also part of the German um, skeptics Gwup or GWUP or GWUP, however you want to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah. He's a part of the science board. The, I think he's actually the leader of the science board. Yep. <laughs> mm, nice. And, and we did, and we will talk about homeopathy in this interview as well, mm. tying back to the news mm -hmm. about Bavaria. Yes. And something we should, we should also um, add is that we did this interview almost a month ago. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind that, uh, for example, the whole lockdown situation in Germany was a bit different at that point of time. Uh, the cases were different. Yeah, so yeah, uh, some, some things changed, but we, uh, it's, it's something that, of course, we couldn't know yet because it didn't happen yet. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely feel that that kind of uh, concern. <laughs> uh, I recorded an interview with a um, biostatistician like in August, and uh, it, it was all about the, the COVID situation. <laughs> and I started editing the interview, and I wanted to add a couple of uh, graphs here and there because it's a video interview. And uh, then I just ran out of time. And I couldn't release it because it was all out of date by the time yeah. that I could have released it. <laughs> but that that was not for the ESP, right? It was not. It was in Hungarian. It was for the Hungarian ah, okay, skeptics. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's it's an interesting thing, uh, philosophy. Uh, so why don't we why don't we listen to that interview? Every now and then we interview someone whose work we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. This week our guest is Nikhil Mukherjee, a German author, philosopher and skeptic. He has a position at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich and is the academic director of philosophy, politics and economy. He studied economy, philosophy and theory of science and wrote his PhD thesis about consequentialism. He is an academic instructor and teacher now, as well as a researcher of philosophy and ethics. He is also a very active skeptic, as he is head of the scientific board of GWUP, or GWUP, and a regular speaker at SkepCon. Nikhil often writes for the German skeptics magazine Skeptica, and he has also published several books and essays. With Adriano Manino, he wrote... Covid-19, was in der Krise zählt, über Philosophie in Echtzeit, about philosophy in times of a global pandemic. Nikhil, welcome to the show and thanks for agreeing to this interview. Annika Pontus, hi. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> welcome. Yeah, so we're, we're very thankful. And I think the first thing we, we would like to ask is, how did you become a philosopher despite the reputation it has in schools and also in public? Oh, what is the reputation it has in school? Um, well, me as a teacher, I can tell you that it has a very dusty reputation or like mm -hmm. a very, well, my students would politely say Laberfach, which means like a, <laughs> a, a subject sure. where you just talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. This was actually my perception as well. Um, when I had to study it in school, this was actually my least favorite subject. And I would also always try to come up with creative excuses why I wouldn't go to the, go to the sessions in school. Uh, it's called ethic, which would be, uh, would translate to ethics, but it's more or less philosophy that you're looking at as a whole. And you have to read excerpts from Kant and Nietzsche and uh, Kierkegaard and all these like famous and influential philosophers, and they don't seem to make sense. So what I did after I went um, to uh, high school 
when I finished my my A levels, um, is I went to uh, Deutsche Bank and did an internship there mm -hmm. and studied um, business economics and financial management. And while I was working there, I recognized that they had so many ethical issues that were not addressed and which would honestly freak me out. Um, basically, what I was doing there was to sell products um, to customers, which were mostly um large companies, uh, which would later on uh, go on to trigger the financial crisis. So these are like special financial products, um, which bundle certain types of assets um, so that other banks can buy them. And I thought that you should have a serious discussion as to what is going on there. And then found that nobody wanted to do that. And I was quite frightened of the consequences and then looked um, to possible solutions and found them in business ethics. At least that's what I thought the solution would be, would be there. Um, and then just started reading up on business ethics. So I would uh, pick up certain books and then um, went through the references and then ended up um, <laughs> reading uh, Karl Marx and Immanuel Kant and mm -hmm. uh, all of these philosophers. And so this sparked my interest in, um, in philosophy. So I don't think you should approach the subject um, by just reading philosophy. You should always try to find a practical purpose and then mm -hmm. move to the theoretical underpinnings, which is basically what I did. And uh, now I'm a philosopher who works in mostly in practical philosophy, but also in theoretical philosophy and um, also in meta philosophy, which is um, basically the study of the philosophy of philosophy. <laughs> so what is philosophy good for and how are we supposed to do it, um, what is the difference between philosophy and uh, the sciences, and so on and so forth. Um, so this is, yeah, this was my personal evolution as a as a philosopher. Mm -hmm. uh, that's yes. very interesting. I mean, so you you don't agree that uh, philosophy is dusty and boring and uh, and not relevant in today's society? No, it, I mean the subject itself and the question it, it poses um, are super relevant. The problem is the way it is often practiced, and this has to do with the way we have institutionalized it in in our. Um, universities, I think. Um, I mean, it's it's a good thing that philosophers are incentivized to produce books and to write articles. But the problem is that uh, you can only ever do that when you come up with a new idea. So essentially what happens then is if you don't have anything original to say, then you will just um, recycle all your old ideas and you will chop up certain ideas in order to come up with like these least publishable units, which make um, philosophy very boring to read for somebody who isn't familiar with the customs um, and who doesn't understand the, the questions. Um, I think what we should do as philosophers is to always ask what we can contribute to society. I mean, maybe this is too much to ask, but um, we should do that more, I think, which is basically what Adriano, who Annika mentioned, and I tried to do in the, uh, in the little COVID book. And so what happened was that in the, be in the beginning of the year, end of January, Adriano and I looked at um, the data that came out of Wuhan and we were uh, quite scared of the of the prospect of the virus getting out of China, which had already happened, and the exponential curves that were uh, being published of the of this of the spread of the virus. And we thought that there might be a real possibility that the virus could not be contained in this area and would spread all around the world. And we um, thought that as a service to society, we should think about the risk ethics. So risk ethics is the subfield in ethics, which um, tries to tease out what you should do in uh, situations where you cannot um, anticipate all the consequences. And you can um, uh, sometimes not even um, put probabilities um, on these consequences. So we put together a dossier and then sent it out to um, politicians and to journalists. Um, <laughs> and we had 
high hopes for that, um, which in retrospect was quite naive um, because we called for quite substantive and radical measures. I mean, we would ask for uh, the borders to be closed and to, uh, for, for travel bans to be um, to be put in place and so on and so forth. This is actually, I think, what philosophers should do all the time when they are concerned with practical matters. Um, at least they should try to initiate a discussion and then talk with laypersons, um, for instance, with virologists and epidemiologists um, and medical uh, personnel and doctors, um, but also politicians, and try to advise them and try to show them how to think things through when they have to come up with a decision. I mean, we're not specialists when it comes to um, all of their fields, but we're specialists when it comes to seeing your own blind spots, seeing all the alternatives that should be on the table and then making a decision. This is what we do. Yeah. So, so do you think that that's the problem with philosophy, that people do not know that they need it in, in other fields? I think... Not even philosophers know where their <laughs> subject is needed. And this is the problem. I mean, we have very bad PR and you're not incentivized. Um, if you um, are an academic philosopher working at a university to talk to the public and talk to the press, this is just something that nobody ever talks about. I mean, there is a, a media communications um, division at LMU, but they, they never mentioned this to me. They, they, they never approached me. I approached them because I had certain things to say that I thought would be interesting to, to the public. And now they occasionally approach me and then refer me to certain journalists. But this is something that is not done proactively enough. Oh. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. That's certainly. I totally agree. And the way the two of us met was through GWUP or GVUP. <laughs> um, so how did you come in contact with the skeptical movement and decided to join it? Was it, was it like what, which hen or egg came first? Was it first philosophy, then skepticism or the other way around or at the same time? How, how did that go? Hmm. Um, well, at some point I, because I did a, a fair bit of, of corporate consulting, um, I started writing a book about common sense uh, because this is, what I think philosophy should uh, be underpinned by, this is something that we all share, right? We all have our common sense and then we can specialize in various fields and then um, go beyond what is just common sense and uh, be experts at something. Um, but what I would try is to talk to managers and engineers and um, jurists and try to show them how to think things through and try to avoid fallacies in your thinking. Yeah. And this would then if eventually become a book, um, which is called the, uh, Die Zehn Gebote des Gesundheitsverstandes, or the Ten Commandments of Common Sense. And yeah, I had this book in hand and it was, um, published in 2016 and nobody cared about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried to, um, support the publisher in selling the book by looking for audiences that uh, would be interested and then applied for um, Skepcon 2016 um, because I saw the call for papers and I thought this would be a good idea. <laughs> and I was immediately turned down. <laughs> <laughs> this is what in academia you call a desk reject. Uh, um, so I sent this through and then um, it, it took no time at all for the response to be uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess you didn't take no for an answer because you're still here, right? Well, actually, I did. Um, oh. It was Natalie Grams who I had approached independently. Um, she used to be a homeopath and then became a, a science educator. And now she went back to being a doctor. But she, she was in charge of the homeopathy division, which is actually fairly successful um, part of, of group. And I wrote to her because I had found her book. And while I was writing my Ten Commandments of Common Sense book, um, I had always looked for some field which would illustrate all the potential fallacies that you could ever come up with in one package. And I thought homeopathy, this is the perfect thing because it illustrates how you can, <laughs> how you can fail by all of the commandments that I um, had thought up. Um, so I wrote to her and basically thanked her 
that she had written this book and then also commended her for being so brave as to um, go public with it. And um, she, yeah, replied. This was at a time when she wasn't like as famous as she is now. She probably would have ignored my email had I written now. Um, but she had hardly any followers um, at that time. And the book was just out for a few months, I guess, mm -hmm. when I wrote to her. Mm -hmm. And then she said, well we should talk on the phone sometime and maybe come up with um, joint projects. And then eventually we um, wrote an article on homeopathy, which was different than the other articles that had been published um, prior to that. Because usually articles in homeopathy just um, tell you that homeopathy doesn't work and why and how we know this. Um, but our question was actually, given my interest in fallacies, was different. Um, we asked why... Um, would anyone believe that? Any any person with a brain? Why would mm. why would anybody believe that? Um, and the answer that I suggested, which is actually an empirical psychological answer, uh, which I think is still quite plausible, and uh, we just made that claim and said, well, there are a couple of fallacies that people tend to make when they just want to believe something. And then we identified seven of them and uh, wrote up a short manuscript and sent this to Spectrum der Wissenschaft, which is a fairly well-reputed um, science magazine in, in Germany. And they published it. And then Zeit Online, which is uh, one of the largest German newspapers, um, approached us and they republished it. And now uh, it's one of the articles, I think, on homeopathy that uh, is most frequently quoted. When, when the problem is that you have to, you have this crazy uncle or aunt uh, in your family who tries to convince you that you should, uh, you should use homeopathy. Mm -hmm. So this is the story that brought Natalie uh, and me together. And in within the next year, then um, she asked me whether I would speak at Skepcon, and then I didn't even have to apply. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no way to uh, to turn me down anymore because I didn't. I, I went in through the back door. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you already talked about your um, your book, The Ten Commandments of Common Sense. And what are the Ten Commandments? Maybe you don't have to mention all ten, but yeah, what, what can we... What do we understand with that? <laughs> yeah, this is an obvious question. I mean, it's actually embarrassing to talk about this subject um, to people who know the business of thinking, uh, because what I say is always just common sense. But this, I mean, I'm not defrauding anyone, <laughs> um, because this is what the book says, right? It's just common sense. But um, what I found is that when you um, try to dig deep and try to uh, come up with a solution to to a complicated problem is that the, the first thing that you should do is to go back to the very principles of thought, which are absolutely obvious to anyone with a brain and uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be controversial at all. So the first thing that you would do, and this is actually the the first commandment, is to try to bring order into your thinking. Um, you should identify the question that you're thinking about and to try to clarify what a potential answer would be. And then, and only then, can you come up with a provisional answer that you would then examine, right? And you do this by giving an argument in favor of the answer, mm -hmm. right? So this is, this is basically what you do. You ask a question, then you come up with a proposition that would answer the question, and then you come up with an argument, which basically means you um, state certain premises, and then this is the micro unit of thought. Um, once you've done that, you've ordered your thinking in the, in the sense of the first commandment. And this is the first step that um, you should take, and that explains most of the problems that people actually turn out to have. I mean, when I, I'm sometimes tasked to grade papers in university and have to read student essays. And what I find is that sometimes they don't even identify a clear question. Um, and this is very bad because it means that you cannot give um, a satisfactory answer and you don't really know what 
you're pursuing and you're thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And then everything comes crashing down. So I think even though the first commandment is so simple and absolutely uncontroversial, um, like 50% of the mistakes actually happen there. Yeah. And it is only once you've passed this um, threshold that you can go beyond the first commandment and try to obey um, the other commandments. Another commandment, for instance, is to is to spot gaps in your thinking. Uh, sometimes you come up with arguments that are um, fine, but you don't make all the premises explicit. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a textbook example which which can illustrate this. It's quite gimmicky, but I think it it suffice to make the point. All humans are mortal. That's the first premise. Mm-hmm. Te- second premise is Socrates, the famous philosopher, mm-hmm. is a human. So Socrates is mortal. That that would be the conclusion. This is an argument that is logically watertight um, because it follows a certain uh, pattern, which is just a logically valid argument. It's called modus ponens, mm-hmm. right? So just imagine that somebody would say, well, Socrates is a human, so Socrates is mortal. We tend to say these things in everyday life, and this is perfectly fine, but we should always be aware that when we say these things, um, the crucial premise, namely that all humans are mortal, is missing. And when you do philosophy and when you do science and when you try to think seriously about any issue, you should always try to spot these gaps in your thinking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not in everyday life. Much of what we think about just follows certain psychological routines. And um, we would overthink things if we would just uh, go on and try to spot gaps all the time. But when you really try to make headway with a complicated issue, you have to do that. Yeah, this is the, the uh-huh. second commandment. And it, it, it also applies to many of the issues that skeptics would find interesting. For instance, if, say, you argue with somebody who finds homeopathy plausible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they would point to a study that um, some homeopath um, performed using 20 subjects um, that he had recruited in his own practice, right? Then you would look for gaps in the argument in the study. And what are potential gaps? Well, you have to know something about the scientific process um, and about um, medical trials and would ask him whether he had randomized his participants into groups or is there even a control group in the study? Um, Because if you don't have a control group, you have a a gap in your thinking, right? You cannot conclude what you are Mm. uh, concluding from the study. And this is something that, um, yeah, Yeah. would apply at that stage. Yeah, Naturally, I do do agree with what you're saying uh, from that point of view, from the logical point of view. But I wonder, uh, you know, the cynic in me will say that common sense is not so common. And also (laughs) that you, you have a premise there in your logic there that people will actually that they want to make sense. <laughs> but a lot of people don't want to make sense. They don't even care if it makes sense. They make up the conclusion first. And if they then go to, to studies, it's only to justify what they already know is true. So how would you argue with that? Hmm. Um, well, I think there is a distinction that you should make between the normative principles of thought, which is what I call the commands of common sense, and the way we go about our business in everyday life, as a matter of fact, right? This is just a descriptive statement about the psychology of most people and how they proceed when they think about things, right? And I absolutely agree. Um, This is probably what I have done most of my life. I would come up with my conclusion and then try to look for arguments which would support the conclusion, which is not the way to do it at all. Right? No, but I think all, we all do that. Even me as a, you know, old mm-hmm. cynical skeptic, I do that all the time. I, I know I do. It. Yeah. So <laughs> you should then try to offset this by talking to somebody like me, uh, who's a naturally born contrarian. I just like to have discussions. And uh, if you were to confront me with some of your most most central convictions, then I would 
just tease it apart and try to see where you're coming from, right? Mm. I mean, not maliciously, but I I just love doing that, um, <laughs> which is why I don't get invited to dinner parties, or at least I'm not invited back. No. Uh, the, the same for us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is what being a skeptic is all about. Yeah. Right, right. This is this is this is our our <laughs> the, the form of social recognition that we should be shooting for. Yeah. Yeah. This is our currency. Yeah? Not not being invited back. <laughs> right. B- being a good skeptic. <laughs> so if we move from there, from the pure philosophical things, more to the skeptical things. Do you have any favorite skeptic topics that you enjoy? You mentioned homeopathy, but is there anything else that you really love to to dig into? Well, for the past few years, I've mainly worked in homeopathy, and I've also um, debated um, lobbyists for homeopathy. Um, one just recently, I think Annika probably could have seen it. Mm-hmm. My discussion with Jens Benke. Maybe we can um, put this in the show notes if you absolutely if you yes, that. sure, um, sure. But it's uh, unfortunately it's in German. Um, we have a lot of German listeners, so that's fine. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was a, a a natural starting point. As I said, um, what I love about homeopathy is that you have one doctrine which illustrates all the fallacies and missteps and thinking that you could couldn't conceivably produce. Um, another topic which I quite like um, is conspiracy theories and fake news. Mm-hmm. These are two topics that overlap but are not the same because you could have a conspiracy theory which is not um, which doesn't spread in the form of any news or fake news, right? Yeah. And you can have fake news that don't contain conspiracy theories. But apart from that, they function in in similar ways. And um, oftentimes the fallacies that people make are very similar to the thought patterns that would make you believe in homeopathy. And we already said that you're part of the scientific board of uh, GWUP and also the head of it. Um, So what's your job there? (laughs) Yeah, I was... I just didn't say no when I was when my name was called out. <laughs> <laughs> this was an interesting turn of of events um, for me because I was actually fairly new in in the uh, skeptic society in Germany, and yeah, people like my ideas and they like the fact that I would also uh, put new problems on the table and talk about these things, um, COVID being one example. Actually, as a scientific council, we don't really do much except when we are called upon. Uh, so, for instance, last year, the Bavarian parliament ruled that there should be a study examining whether homeopathy could conceivably help against um, multi-resistant uh, mm-hmm. germs, right? Yeah. So bacteria that are resistant to um, all the known forms of uh, antibiotics. And evidently, this is, a, this is a horrible idea and the worst way to spend taxpayers' money. So what happens then is that um, uh, the board comes to us and then asks us to come up with a statement, which is usually um, uh, written down by one person and drafted by a couple of of, of people in terms of like the the main ideas and then we send it around and uh, try to collect feedback from uh, all of these well reputed um, people who are members of the scientific council i'm more or less the youngest one i think with one exception and most of them are fairly fairly influential and very very important people um Edward Ernst being one of the examples i mean he was the first professor for um, alternative and complementary medicine right Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then was um, fired by Prince Charles because he was too hard on, on his snake oil and the famous snake oil that the royal family is selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so this is, this is basically it. Yeah. We get called upon to come up with statements and then, and then they get published. Um, what, what, what happened to that thing in Bavaria, by the way, uh, about have, using homeopathy against the covid Well, did it go away or is it still being debated there? Um, no, they stopped debating it. They just, <laughs> this, uh, this initiative got passed. Oh, um, shit. And yeah. yeah. So they're basically going ahead with it. I think we talked about it on the show, but I re- didn't remember how it ended. <laughs> you suppressed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, and this is bad for two reasons. Um, the one reason is that um, money is being spent that should be spent uh, differently. That's fairly obvious. But the second effect that this produces is um, that lay people will look at this and then say, hmm, if the Bavarian parliament is interested in that, then it cannot be scientifically nonsense right. right it gives it legitimacy yeah. which it doesn't deserve yeah, yeah. it legitimizes uh, a pseudoscience and this is this is pretty problematic right mm -hmm. yeah? yeah of course i mean we already talked about COVID 19 and we also just got to the topic again uh we also already talked about your book but we were uh, just thinking about the question why a global pandemic is such a challenge in regards to philosophy and ethics for like the society, but also for individuals. And what would you say to that? Well, the problem for, for a philosopher um, is that some of the conclusions that you come up with are very, I mean, even though I think they're all just common sense, they sound extremely alien and sometimes even crazy to, to other people. Um, one example is that um, we argue in the book that sometimes you shouldn't follow the majority of the experts. Mm -hmm. You should follow the minority of the experts. Not in your beliefs, but in the way you act. And this is a crucial distinction, which is um, fairly obvious if you have any training in philosophy. Um, you would distinguish between your beliefs and between what you do, the actions that you uh, choose to do, right? Um, and it might be that um, you do something in order to prevent a scenario that you do not really believe could happen, right? This is something that actually is fairly practical and everybody um, who's ever taken out um, insurance in order to, um, I don't know, insure their house, say, Right? Mm -hmm. I guess a scenario in which it's burning down and you um, you're financially ruined. Right? Anybody who who does that doesn't believe that their house is going to burn down. Right? This is a scenario that is very very unlikely. But nevertheless, you want to be insured in case it mm. it happens. Right? And yeah. this is the way you should think about um, how to deal with scientific expertise as well. Right? So in a scenario where you have I don't know, say 10 experts and nine of them say, well, this virus, which is coming out of Wuhan, it's basically just a different version of the flu, right? And it's benign. It will probably kill a few people, but uh, apart from that, nothing's going to happen, right? And you have this one crazy dude who's also an established member of the, uh, of the scientific community, um, has all the all the credentials and nobody doubts this, right? And he says, if we don't act now, there's a catastrophe headed our way, right? Yeah? Mm -hmm. In this scenario, I would listen very closely to this one person because as far as I know, and I'm, I'm a lay person, we cannot um, exclude the possibility that this is, uh, this is actually going to happen, right? I'd give it mm -hmm. a 10% 10 chance. And if it has a 10% chance... And if that guy is correct, then what are the costs um, that it would take in order to prevent the scenario, right? And if the costs are sufficiently low, for instance, if it, if it would just take closing the borders and taking certain precautions, putting people into mandatory quarantine, then I think this is something that we should absolutely do. And this is mm. what we try to convince politicians of and they said it was gone it was too expensive and nobody thought it was it was necessary yeah? when actually people were calling for it mm -hmm. i can see how this is a counterintuitive way of thinking but actually when you dig deep and you go to the the very bases and the and the fundamental premises then it's actually an argument that everybody should be able to understand and this is this is a blind spot that i see not just in in the larger public but also in the skeptic society because we are very scientifically minded and as skeptics we usually hear a certain claim and then ask well what is the evidence for it right mm -hmm. and in this case 
you shouldn't ask what is the evidence that uh, this thing is going to happen, this bad thing which is being uh, prophesized. You should ask what is the evidence that this is not going to happen, mm. right? What is the evidence that this virus is harmless? And before you have that evidence, you should take all the measures that you could take and that are reasonable and cheap enough Uh, in order to ensure that we're not running into a pandemic. It's pretty much being uh, better safe than sorry, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is something that your grandmother would have told you. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. No, I understand that the, 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 if you like it to uh, an insurance, as you, as you say, the, the odds that my house will burn down is very slim, but I still have an insurance because the cost, if it happened, would be so high that I wouldn't you know my uh, my life would be totally devastated if it happened so i'll pay this small amount but i i still i'm i'm not convinced really i uh, i think i think you may put a little bit too much faith in people being logical and rational all the time and i don't think uh, they necessarily are <laughs> but I, but i welcome the discussion i think it's it's uh, good yeah Actually, I don't. I think you should try to think things through carefully as a reasonable person, right? This is this is an ideal that we should strive towards. And then there are a couple of psychological hacks that you could use in order to improve your thinking, which actually do not have to do in the first instance with the commandments themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So people sometimes, especially journalists, ask me, what is the one thing that you would recommend? Like which commandment would you recommend to uh, to uh, a person if they want to um, improve their thinking and then i usually do not point to any of the commandments and I don't give any logical tips what i would say is that you should try to change your social environment and try to hang out with more reasonable people hmm. right because this is the one thing that you can do which will ensure that you are being nudged towards the truth Yeah, I, I agree with that. The people around us very much forms who we are and we always want to join the group. And so we adapt to the group. So that, that that's very that's very clear. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have seen occasionally very uh, famous scientists and even skeptics also to that they belittle philosophy and, and try to dismiss it as something that's ancient, ancient and not very relevant today. Why do you think that is? I think the, the problem that philosophy has is that what a philosopher does is not study, say, a microorganism or a formation of rocks or, uh, I don't know, particles or some, stuff like that. Uh, we don't have a a clearly circumscribed object of study, right? No. Well, what we do is we ask questions that are quite fundamental that are usually asked in science as well. But when they are asked, they are not asked consciously. For instance, um, a physicist may come up with a theory which connects two events, right? Event A, event B, and then would claim that event A causes event B. Um, so what a philosopher would be interested in is not whether this is actually true, but what it even means for anything to cause anything, right? Mm. So it's about um, the nature of causation uh, or the concept of causation. We're interested in, in clarifying and thinking things through at a very fundamental level. And if you don't do that in science, this is a very bad idea because um, your science can only be as good as the as a meta theory which guides the way you do science, right? And this is something that is underestimated, I guess. And the problem is that there is oftentimes too little collaboration between um, philosophers and scientists um, when it really counts. So, so should should philosophy be higher on the in the training of scientists? Should they all because I think perhaps one problem is that scientists don't understand why philosophy is important and how it applies to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But maybe we shouldn't call it philosophy. This is something that um, I try to avoid in my um, in my common sense book, my, my, which has the Ten Commandments of Common Sense. Um, I don't talk about philosophy explicitly. I don't talk about the problem of free will or um, the problem of knowledge or in, in, in all these uh, philosophical puzzles, right? Uh, because we have these puzzles 
too. But most of the time, um, what is necessary in all the other areas is to apply the methods of philosophy, clear thinking and conceptual analysis and asking what are you even doing and is this is this justifiable is this reasonable what are you doing right and these questions um i think are universally acceptable to anyone who who is interested in finding out the truth about anything right mm -hmm. which is what scientists are actually all about right? so you you don't have to make it a pr campaign for philosophy you just have to make sure that they are looking towards the right uh, uh, the right issues are you saying that philosophy has a bad name now so we have to rebrand it a bit yeah possibly and the problem is that um philosophy is actually the product of a certain kind of evolution i mean used to be that philosophy was just inquiry any any kind of intellectual undertaking which would um, aim at finding out the truth about anything right this was philosophy and then over time um, the the physical sciences and biology eventually psychology would um, separate from philosophy because they would come up with their own methods and distinct um, empirical questions and what remained in philosophy were just these very hard to grasp and hard to answer questions that are sometimes so difficult to even state that this is now what is left of philosophy, right? Mm. I mean, it's still exciting and very interesting because th these are the ultimate questions we can keep. We, we will keep debating them for, for millennia to come if, if the human race survives that long. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm super excited about this, but it's to an outsider, it's very hard to understand why would he, we would even do that. Um, right? Because all of the, all of the sciences have these very clear, um, objectives and, and, and objects, and they have a clear methodology and protocols. Um, and in philosophy, everything is up for grabs, which is something that is sometimes it feels, even to me, a bit arbitrary. Yeah, this is one of the problems. And another problem is that, frankly, within philosophy, there's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> But in rest of science as well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we have to um, seek it out and then try to state this clearly and try to, to, to improve this. But there is a different kind of um, bullshit in philosophy. I mean, there, in science, you would usually have a, a clear question that everybody can understand. Uh, I mean, not at the very technical level, but um, ultimately you have to be able to state how scientific research would make a practical difference, right? Yeah. You, you do an experiment and you're expecting something to happen, right? And you have to be able to, to state this clearly. You have to have some measurement device and then it will state, uh, give you a number or something, right? Mm. And in philosophy, you don't have that. Um, in philosophy, it's everything, as I said, is negotiable. Even the questions themselves and even basic concepts like knowledge and truth and causation. And this leads philosophers to sometimes come up with a different kind of bullshit, which is, which is pseudo profound bullshit. <laughs> um, this is, yeah, I mean, um, Gordon Pennycook, I don't know if the names ever come up on this podcast. I don't think so. No, no. he has written uh, a beautiful paper on pseudo profound bullshit and bullshit <laughs> receptivity. Um, the question to him was, what makes you susceptible to that kind of bullshit? And it's not any old bullshit. Any old bullshit would be just um, the attempt to defend your position without any regard for the truth, mm. right? You just don't care whether the arguments that you're providing for your, for your position uh, hold any water. Um, this is the um, plain vanilla variety of bullshit. But in philosophy, you can come up with conceptual bullshit. Um, you can come up with very complicated sentences and paragraphs and chapters um, that eventually, if you really dig down, are not about anything, right? <laughs> but since philosophy is a really technical undertaking, and it's often hard to understand what philosophers do, you wouldn't find out until you've tried to really understand it, right? 
if you were, say, to read a book by Heidegger mm -hmm. or Derrida, yeah, this would probably be indistinguishable to a layperson to a book um, which is actually about substantive issues. For instance, Kant, which is, yeah, the, I mean, the German philosopher Kant, not the, <laughs> not the other word. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is actually why on international conferences, there are these weird pronunciations of the word Kant, right? Because this is actually how you would pronounce it in German. They can't. They would say Immanuel Kant. Yeah. It's like, just to forever, make sure. Yeah, yeah. Just to make sure that you're That's not. Funny. Or can't. I also heard can't yeah. before. Yeah, can't. Or, or, or you'd pronounce it can't. Yeah. Um, so his books are also very hard to read, but they are about substantive questions that you, could, that you can actually make progress on, um, like epistemology and ethics. Yeah? But um, there is a lot of postmodern nonsense where they don't make any sense. And this is a problem that philosophy has. Um, it plays a fairly minor role within philosophy. I mean, we, we were quite successful when it came to exporting these bad ideas to other subjects. Now it's their problem. They have to deal with them, right? But it's still called philosophy. And this is what gives um, philosophy a bad reputation, I think. <laughs> Um, so you already mentioned um, some of your books and can you maybe tell us some th something about other books or if, if you've written other books and um, what they're about and of course very important for our listeners <clears throat> are any of your books available in English or in other languages mm, yeah um, I would recommend probably the one about experimental philosophy because it's the cheapest and <laughs> it's also the easiest to read um, it's <laughs> It's called Experimental Philosophy, a Critical Study. And this is a, about a fairly exciting uh, new movement in philosophy, which started in the early 2000s um, with a paper on uh, epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, right? Um, and what you have to know is that philosophy actually follows or usually follows a certain methodology which is a priori so it doesn't use any empirical input um, it's mm -hmm. only about thinking right so you would come up with a theory and then you would test this theory not against um, empirical data uh, but against um, your intuitions about thought experiments um, so for instance you could um, look at um, the definition of the concept of knowledge. So what is knowledge in essence, right? And then um, you will find in one of these old um, dialogues um, uh, by Plato that Socrates proposed uh, the definition that knowledge is true justified uh, opinion. So you have to believe something, it has to be justified, you have to be able to give an argument for why you believe it, and it has to be true. And whenever these three conditions are met, you are entitled to call your opinion knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So this is fairly intuitive, and many people believed it for, um, for over two millennia. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that you can come up with all sorts of um, intricate thought experiments, which show that this cannot be the truth about knowledge. Like, for instance, imagine you um, get up in the morning and you walk into your kitchen and then you look at um, the kitchen clock and it says, well, it's 7.30 or uh, in my case, I don't know, 11.30 yeah, <laughs> uh, in the morning. And then you form the belief that it is 7.30 in the morning You have a justification for that. And it is, in fact, 7.30 in the morning. So all of these conditions are met, right? But what you don't know is that the, the clock stopped working 12 hours before that. And it's only by accident that it is now the exact time that it was um, 12 hours before uh, in the evening, um, 7.30, mm -hmm. right? If you put this thought experiment to most people, then they, or at least most philosophers would say, well, this clearly shows that um, knowledge isn't justified true opinion. There has to be a further condition. And then the discussion um, and the debate in epistemology was, what is this fourth condition? Or should we modify one of these three conditions, right? Um, so this is how philosophers would approach 
conceptual problems of philosophy. Now, the interesting empirical question is whether normal folks like, <laughs> like you guys who don't do philosophy <laughs> would even agree with the judgment that philosophers frequently make about these thought experiments. And it turns out that fairly often they don't judge these scenarios the way philosophers do, right? Uh, which is interesting because philosophers would often claim that they're just analyzing concepts that are used by scientists and politicians and, uh, yeah, just um, everyday practitioners and, and lay people, right? Um, so this opened up a debate about um, how to deal with this problem and what you can learn from it and, um, yeah, gave birth to um, plethora of um, empirical studies about this very phenomenon, which is called experimental philosophy. And I think this is very interesting to, mm -hmm. to start there, because um, what I do is I explain the, the philosophical problems and why they're interesting, and then illustrate the way you can approach these problems using empirical methods, which are usually taken from uh, psychology, um, but not only that, um, we also use economic methods, um, bibliographic methods, and all sorts of uh, crazy arguments from evolutionary um, biology um, and, and evolutionary psychology and so on and so forth. So this is a very interesting development. Right. And I think it costs 30 bucks or something. Oh, and is it in, available in English or, or you have to read it in German? No, this is this is one of the few books that I that are non-technical and are available in English. Oh, excellent. Yeah. It's good. called Experimental Philosophy, a Critical Study. Okay, very good. Yeah. So to uh, maybe round off this interview, where can people find out more about your work and what you're doing? Do you have a website or a blog or? Well, I sometimes go on Twitter and then and discuss it by <laughs> how other people have different opinions from mine and then engage them. Mm -hmm. um, I do this not on a regular basis, but um, I, I started doing that more when I think I actually had something interesting to say about issues, mainly COVID-19, but I usually tweet in German. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. But this this would be my Twitter handle, Nikhil Mukherjee, which is basically my my first and uh, and last name. Okay. Um, in one in one word, and I also have a presence on Facebook, mm -hmm. but um, I, I haven't spent much time there these days. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm the your your average philosopher. I just uh, <laughs> like to think about things and not being disturbed by others. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Following the cliche. <laughs> yeah. I I don't like people, especially other people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then uh, we would like to thank you a lot for the interview, Nikhil, uh -huh. and was really interesting. And yeah, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Annika Pontus. Thanks so much for inviting me. Hope to be back. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I really hope that everyone who has listened to this uh, now realizes that philosophy has a lot to do with skepticism and it's and it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to to discuss it. Yeah, I, I, it really does. I think uh, what came f forward in the interview was really that philosophy is not this abstract thing mm. ethics is something that you pra you have to practice actually and and it is relevant to to society in general and to skepticism as well in particular yeah and it's also um really really uh, relevant right now in our pandemic situation so yeah yeah i really enjoyed um interviewing Nikhil Mukherjee because he's he's just uh, he just has a lot to say to things and he, mm. he's um, very well thought in that regard. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I really regret not having been there, but uh, life got in the way. All right, so this has been all uh, for this week. I do have to mention, though, before we go, that uh, next week I'm going to be interviewed on Radio Chica. So I don't know when it is released, but uh, it's going to be next week after we record the next episode. So I'm a little bit nervous <laughs> because <laughs> even though I do speak Italian and I understand most of it, but I, I'm, well, 
I wouldn't say I'm professional. So it's going to be quite a challenge, but I hope the listeners, Italian speakers, will, will appreciate it because it's going to be all in Italian. So what would yeah. tune into the interview in Italian mean? Tune into the interview. No, I don't know that expression. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for reminding me that. <laughs> Just putting you on the spot. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I will look it up now. And uh, I will know it by next week. <laughs> okay. So thank you. Not for not only for that, but for joining me today, Anika and Pontus. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Chipungs. Hi, this is a different animal every yeah. week. I don't know yes. what that was. A sick dolphin. Mm. I think it was a beaver. Yes, maybe. I'm I'm walking through the ladder uh, of pr proverbial evolutionary ladder. <laughs> I don't even know what it was. Coelacanth. Coelacanth. Yeah, that's a pretty noisy animal. <laughs> when you put it out on the dry. <laughs>